Chinese medicine is fundamentally a, a medicine of physiology, and we we take the human within the equation as the foundation, right? Yi ren wei ben, meaning meaning what that. The specific characteristics of the the individual producing that pathology are most important in determining what is going to be the most effective treatment strategy. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I'm beginning to come to the place where acupuncture is far stranger and more curious than I previously allowed it to be. It's like I've been trying to squeeze this medicine that can be tangentially grasped with the Western mind into a shape and form that like water, it can't fit into. But the true nature of water is not the form we see when it's being contained. The nature of water is that it's connective, flowing, and responsive to everything that's around it. I would not call acupuncture magical, but it can show us connections that Western biomedicine does not. Acupuncture doesn't work outside the bounds of nature, but it does draw different boundaries. We can grasp acupuncture with our modern biomedicine minds, but grasping it with the mind of nature, grasping the medicine beyond the story we tell ourselves and the story our patients are telling themselves, that leaves us on shaky and fertile ground. Our medicine suggests that qi is both beyond and within form. Qi is impossible to succinctly translate into English. If there was ever a slippery term that refused to be nailed down, qi would be it. It's an idea that no amount of words will ever quite capture. It's more rooted in that moment of experience just before it collapses into conception and language. Anything named can only slice off an aspect of chi. We can see its tracks in the snow. We can catch a glimpse from the corner of the eye. That unnameable essential something that spins out the 10,000 things, that brings babies into this world and old people out of it, that shape shifts into sunsets, ice storms, spring daffodils, and moonless nights, that field of being that contains everything that we can and cannot experience. All that we conceptualize and all that falls through the filter of words, all of this is entangled with the work we do. I like to believe there are right ways of doing things. That's, after all, what we were taught as children. There's a right way. It'll get you a gold star and the approval of your teachers and family. Adding in the passage of time, the approval of friends, the influence of culture, and turning point moments in history, that sense of what is possible and right, it changes again. But... All of these are maps in our mind, the naming of the world, the structure of thought we impose on the watery nature of chi. It's not that the shape of the world we create with experience and language is wrong. It's more that it's incomplete. It's not that our senses are incapable of bringing in more information, but that habituations of thought profoundly affect perception. As J.B.S. Haldine said, the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. The work we do in our clinics has one foot in the known and the other in the unknown. I have a suspicion that as satisfying it is to know and to be able to reproduce results that patients ask for, there is an aspect of our work that as it comes from the unknown and unknowable, as it comes from within experience but outside the confines of language, we can participate in the healing encounter. But Often enough, 
not quite able to explain that participation in the moment that it's unfolding. Just like a bucket of water is not the river, and at the same time, it's also a part of the river. The work we do in our clinics with perception, connection, with being in the flow of the chi, and within the mental models of our experience and perception, with our knowing and our unknowing, with our sensing and story, with our need to please and desire to serve and be helpful, our medicine might not only be stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. The space between one thought and another, between friends connected by heart and purpose, or between the veils of life and death is as close or far as the bonds of love and appreciation. This week I lost a dear friend and we lost a big-hearted colleague. Njamile Carol Jones passed away last week. Njamile was not a teacher in that she held classes or formally passed along what she'd learned in her 20-plus years of practice. Her lessons came in discussions at dinner puzzling through medicine as an ever-open-minded student of the art and in her ability to stay connected to love in the service of her patients. Prior to learning Chinese medicine, she was a producer at NPR where she worked on Morning Edition as well as a number of award-winning documentaries. Her nudge at a few critical junctures have helped to make the podcast what it is today. Njamile specialized in working with one of the most challenging populations, women struggling with infertility. I remember her saying of the hard-driving D.C. area patients that she had, these young women just don't get it, that babies don't come on their schedule. They come in their own time, and they have to make room for a baby before they can have one. Yes, sometimes we need to make room for something before it can become manifest. I suspect that's true for all of us not just women wanting babies. I'm going to miss my friend's wise counsel. She had an eye for the spirit that runs through a healing encounter. I will miss her honest, straightforward, and caring heart. She reminded me to work from love, even in the midst of working with patients that I had labeled as difficult. She taught me that her brokenness can help solidify her compassion. I could trust her to speak hard truth when that was called for and that we have to take care of ourselves when we're tired, not cut corners, and remember the commitments that we've made. I've learned a lot from my friend who so often reminded me to approach my work with humble love, and within the unknowing that accompanies our practice, there is something reliable about our spirit that can guide us. I would hope for all of us to have such reliable friends for the journey. There is sadness at her loss, but more than that is the appreciation for the journey taken together. Let's take a moment of silent appreciation. Just like a finely cut gemstone will open a window into appreciating one aspect of the stone, the principles of Chinese medicine give us glimpses into nature and how nature unfolds in ourselves and in our patients. There is this idea in our medicine of flow and that which goes against the flow. Correcting those imbalances brings a greater sense of coherence and well-being. In a moment, we will get into a conversation with Brian McMahon on physiology, chi dynamics, congruence, and the vital role of understanding our patients as unique and individual expressions of the natural world. 
These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. This conversation with Brian McMahon 
It gave me a new perspective on the dynamics of counterflow. Let's get into this. Brian McMahon, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. We, uh, we had some contact probably a dozen years ago. You were living in Beijing. I, was, I had a uh, sort of a temporary sojourn there of a number of months. I remember our paths crossing at that time. You'd already been there a while. How did you originally yeah. find your way from the U.S. to the northern capital? Well, it uh, it took me a few years to end up there. Uh, my story and uh, my trips to Asia actually begin uh, with the study of Japanese back in uh, undergrad. I studied abroad in Kyoto and then uh, returned there after graduating on a um, research fellowship from the, the Japanese Ministry of Education. And it was around that time that I really took up uh, passion and started uh, researching in, in classical philosophy and texts. And uh, from there decided that actually medicine was my way forward. So I realized that academic and scholastic research of culture and texts was not the direction I wanted to go, but that in fact, uh, is traditional medicine, bring together many different things that I was very passionate and interested in, you know, so from Japan, I made the decision uh, to relocate to China in order to pursue those studies a little bit more in depth. At the time I was practicing with uh, a really great martial arts instructor in, in Kyoto and he had received instruction in family lineage of Chun style Tai Chi. And I thought, wow, it would be great if I could continue on in a, in a lineage setting with, with uh, someone from the Chun family or someone close to it. And so I decided to move over to Beijing and kind of have a look around uh, with, the, with the plan that I'd stick around for six months, continue my language study. And if I liked it, uh, I would go on and uh, dive into some formal medical studies after that. And I think you met me maybe towards the end of uh, my medical studies there. It's funny. I have had my mind tell me certain very similar stories. I'm going to go do this. I think I'll give it six months. We'll see what happens. And then the next thing you know, five, six years go by. For me, it was more like 10 or 11. But yeah, yeah. that's sort of how it happens. And, you know, in hindsight, uh, I think I was a little bit naive going into the study of medicine, not realizing what a tremendous uh, field, uh, just a massive field of study it truly is. Um, the, you know, the, the place that it holds in, in Chinese culture, you know, my early days in Beijing, so many people would say to me, wait, you came here to do what? Mm -hmm. I'd say, I, I'm, I'm going to pursue a degree in Chinese medicine and uh, become a clinician. And they would say, man, this is really hard for Chinese people. Like, don't you think, uh, it's going to be next to impossible for you? And I, I'd say, no, I think I'm just going to do it. Um, but I think that really, you know, 10 years is not a lot of time to spend in order to really get your feet solidly on the ground um, and kind of have a, a very clear lay of the land. And I'm really grateful for all of the um, instruction and assistance I've received along the way there because I wouldn't have 
you know, stayed on had I not um, had those people in my life. Yeah, I, I feel really fortunate that I've had folks come along. I'm not sure what they saw in me at that moment, but they they took me some steps down the road. And as to being a bit naive at the beginning, I don't know if any of us get into anything of any worth without being a bit naive, because I, I don't know about you, but I know for myself, if I knew what it would take at the outset, I would never have the courage to start. I ask myself that, you know, I, I really do. Would I have uh, gone down the same path had I known what I know now? And I think actually the answer for me is I definitely would have. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would have, but but I'm here now and uh, and grateful for it. Yeah. So you did all your study in in China. You didn't do your West. You didn't do your Chinese medicine study here in the West. No, in fact, I had very little to no contact or experience with the medicine before I decided to move to China and, and pursue studies in Chinese medicine. So that makes you kind of a, an unusual and rarefied character in this day and time, having that particular background. In that regard, I suppose yes. Uh, it seems more common that people will do their first steps of Chinese medical study uh, in a Western setting and then come over for short term, say six months to a year or pursue a graduate level degree uh, afterwards. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, yeah, I, I suppose it's not so common to meet people like myself who, who did their entire there. It's an undergraduate degree, what translates as a master's in Chinese medicine there. So in a little bit, in a moment, we're going to get in. I want to talk to you about Wen Bing and some other things beyond that. But I know some months ago, um, I had contacted you. I had somehow heard about this Frenchman who had been in China and studying and teaching. And, and somehow, I, I'm not sure how I connected up with you, but you said, yeah, I know this guy. And, and I've spent some time with him. Um. Jacques, I, I'm going to destroy his last name because I can't speak French. PLO. Yeah, Jacques PLO. What was your connection with that cat? Jacques uh, originally came to China at the invite of a student of his, his, his long-term student and uh, main inheritor of his tradition of practice, uh, Sylvie Martin, who is a close friend of mine uh, who lived in Beijing for what, over 10 years and then later moved to Shanghai uh, at the same time that I was there. And um, I'm trying to remember the first time that Jacques came was 2007. So later on in his career, uh, Jacques really took up the mantle of humanitarian acupuncture uh, very strongly. He started a program of Acupuncture Without Borders, um, the, the Swiss NGO, not to be confused, I believe, with Acupuncturists Without Borders, which is a mm -hmm. North American organization, mm -hmm. and was conducting trainings around the world uh, for several years at a time together with some of his colleagues in France, mostly up until that point in French-speaking countries in Africa and I believe also in the Caribbean and Sylvie had invited him to, to come to China to visit. And 
it coincided with uh, a medical mission that was being coordinated by a doctor who would go on to become my primary mentor in Chinese medicine, Dr. Li Xin, uh, and his partner, James Heinrichs, who uh, was trained as an acupuncturist at Southwest in Boulder and who was living in Beijing. And they started this project to begin providing network, uh, networking opportunities and resources for medical professionals in the Tibetan regions of Western Sichuan and uh, Yunnan, but primarily Western Sichuan. So they had this medical mission trip planned and Sylvie and James were close friends. And so James said, well, why don't you invite Jacques to come over with us and you can see if you'd like to continue some type of training or volunteer medical treatments and such in these communities we're going to visit, starting with uh, the center at Dzogchen Monastery. And so we went on this trip together and that was the first time that I, I met Jacques. And it was during this incredible trip to very remote communities throughout uh, the Western mountains of Sichuan and against this backdrop of what was a quite an incredible experience of uh, at that time, myself being, let's see, my second, I just finished my second year of medical education. And so I had very little in terms of uh, practical experience to offer, although I had been doing some acupuncture training in clinic with a private instructor. So they had me doing some acupuncture work for all of these Tibetan patients who would come out for treatment. So we'd show up at a monastery and, you know, people from as far as 50 miles or more in the surrounding areas would come down, having heard that these great doctors were visiting, right, and come up, um, line up, you know, dozens or hundreds deep in some places. And it was this whirlwind trip um, where I got to see and experience both Jacques and Dr. Li Xin leading these, you know, treatments uh, in person for for many people who had very little access to healthcare at all, and really see the heart of the medicine uh, on display. And that really got me thinking about uh, how it is that I wanted to learn the medicine beyond my experience at the university, which to be honest, was quite limited at that time and was somewhat dissatisfying, I think, in that the academic experience or the dry experience of, of Chinese medicine within an academic context had left me feeling a little bit unsatisfied, like I really wasn't finding what I had come there for. Um, and so from there, it started uh, a long-term relationship with uh, working relationships with Sylvie and with Dr. Li Xin, and then Jacques was formally invited to come back and to host trainings at their clinic in Shanghai. And so I returned the next year for three weeks of intensive training with Jacques and then the following year again uh, when he came back. And so those three years, which, you know, out of, out of those three years, it was somewhat limited time that we had together, but the, the impressions that he left on me, I'd, I'd say are, are, are quite deep and quite rich. Um, the majority of the details of his acupuncture system or the acupuncture system that he transmitted, uh, I really have gained insight to and guidance in 
working with Sylvie Martin, his primary student, um, which is not to say that I've made heads or tails of the entirety of some of his system, um, but it's there and um, certainly opened up for me some some ideas and and just again the breadth and the depth of uh of traditional acupuncture yeah you know i'm not sure that we ever get all of what our teachers have to teach in terms of their system or thinking or methodology but it does seem to me that sometimes they can open up aspects that really resonate and and we can carry that forward I heard you use the phrase, the heart of the medicine, a few minutes ago, mm. and, and that really struck me. And when you think of the heart of the medicine, what are you, what are you thinking of? What are you looking at? What's, what's that sense for you? Well, I think first it, it starts with what brings most people into a medical practice of some kind or another, or I would hope brings most people into a medical practice, which is the desire to be of service. We talk about compassion, but I think that that gets abstracted too easily. And we actually get a little bit removed perhaps from what that is in action. I like to think of, you know, the heart of medicine is one of service and it's service through of course, bringing everything that you have to offer, and, and it begins, you know, well before the encounter with the patient, um, all of the, the efforts that you've made, the time and the energy that you put into study and practice to, to bear in that service. But I think that that in-person encounter and really all that you've built up over time is to facilitate just furthering connections with people and connections that breed a, a sense of positivity and engender the further expression of vitality, you know, and, and that all of course happens under the context of, of human connection. And in that context, uh, I saw it present on both sides, you know, I mean, people came with such gratitude, openness, you know, just happy to have someone showing a sense of engagement and, and, and caring for them. And then of course, on the side of the practitioners, all, all of the practitioners and volunteers who came with us, you know, to take time out to, to go and, and do what was really fairly hard traveling and, and, you know, staying we're on the road. I think I set a new record, went close to two weeks without encountering any kind of running water um, to, to bathe, you know, I mean, it, it was not the easiest area of the world to travel in, but it's so rich in terms of that, uh, that level of just human experience. And really, I think you can't, you can't spend time in, in these types of, uh, communities without really being inspired by the heart of the people there. And then also, like I said, the context that brought us together, which was, you know, to do whatever we can, which really felt honestly like a band-aid in many ways on a gushing wound of underserved communities, right? But still, people having tremendous gratitude just for that. What kinds of issues were you treating? Again, this was one small piece in what was an ongoing effort mm. in order to 
provide training and longer-term support to these uh, remote medical stations at different areas and the local Tibetan doctors who were practicing traditional Tibetan medicine. So it, it took the many different forms. Some was pharmaceutical supplies that they need, you know, just simple things, uh, antibiotics, uh, suture kits, you know, those types of things that are just incredibly useful where there's no hospital within maybe over a hundred miles. Um, but then also providing them funds to purchase and um, maintain a pharmacy of traditional Tibetan herbs. But then also Dr. Lee would put together these huge batches of, um, of herbal powders and send them up. And we were training people there to, to work with them as well in simple combinations. So when we would go, we would see people who had been seeing some of the local practitioners who were learning to use the medicine as well as other um, folks from the surrounding communities. But people show up with all kinds of problems from, you know, broken bones that had healed, that had never been set properly. So it healed completely out of place and we're having terrible pain, joint pain. There's people with polio uh, or the, the remnants of the damage that polio had done. Um, widespread, you know, liver infections and disease. Hepatitis is quite rampant in the community. Arthritis, I mean, really debilitating arthritis in various forms. And uh, some folks with heart conditions as well. Um, and then there was another project that was headed by Dr. Lee's partner, uh, Dr. Yang Yong Shao. And they were providing cataract surgeries. They were mm. providing funds and, and bringing specialists from Shanghai to do cataract surgeries for folks there at high altitude um, because, you know, the sun just leads to such terrible degeneration of, of, uh, of the eye tissues. So there was, there was a number of different initiatives going on, but I mean, really it's just, uh, it was um, what appeared to be largely the results of not having been uh, able to receive any kind of what we would consider regular medical care over the, the vast majority of their life resulted in just kind of wear and tear on the body. You know, and another um, issue there that some of our colleagues began to try and address was um, women's health issues are extremely widespread there as well. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Probably the kinds of things that we in Western civilization were probably dealing with several hundred years ago. 
Yeah. And in terms of the, uh, just the, the difficulty of daily life there, you know, mm -hmm. that certainly looks like several hundred years ago, just raw exposure to the elements and, um, the labor, the degree of intensive labor that people do for sure. Yeah. Right. I certainly find myself on occasion complaining about something and then having to remind myself, oh yeah, that's a first world problem. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'd like to turn toward, uh, we wanted to talk, I know, about autoimmune issues and Hashimoto's in particular, but as we were talking before rolling tape today, that it might be a good idea to talk a bit about the Wen Bing first, which is something that I don't know that much about. I mean, I know it's there. I've studied some Shang Han Lun. Mm -hmm. Shang Han Lun study is pretty popular in the West these days. It's like, if you want to get your hands on some of that sort of canonical medicine, it's not particularly difficult. But Wen Bing study is not something, I mean, it's like something we hear about, we know about the Wen Bing. It's mm -hmm. one of the major ways of thinking about Chinese medicine especially around epidemic disease. And yet it seems that at least here in the West, there's just not a lot of access to it. No one's really like picked it up and popularized it or, or picked it up and found a way of, of bringing it into our communities so that we can understand it and, and use it. And so I very much look forward to hearing your thoughts about the wind being and, uh, and how it can help us in particular. And, and not just because of COVID, which is how it can help us in our thinking about how we practice medicine in general. Hmm. I think that uh, the most important thing to understand, and this may bring us to a more general discussion that came up in our email exchange prior to uh, coming online today, but the one being represents the completion of the circle of what we can call the mainstream transmission of Chinese qi dynamics, which is if you have cold and constraint, you must by nature have warmth and expansion. And this is clearly discussed within the Neijing in many different places in several different chapters. It's discussed in the Nanjing, right? Shanghan Yo Wu. There's five types of epidemic disease, right? one being being one of them. And it's even discussed within the Shang Han Lun itself, line six of the Taiyang chapter, right? Gives the basic outline of what is warm disease. Now, I think there's a very logical argument to be made, simply saying that at the time, Zhang Zhongjing was not primarily concerned with the type of presentation that we would consider or put under the category of, of warm disease or one being that these physicians who have left behind these great treatises that we all study now, were just looking to address as effectively as possible, the problems that they were seeing present in clinic day in and day out. And so for early Han dynasty, China, you know, Shang Han, the Shanghan Lun was written, of course, also under the conditions of some type of widespread epidemic disease, as Zhang Zhongjing tells us in the introduction, apparently, you know, having lost a large portion of his family to it, right? So, yes, yeah, was not something that, 
he undertook lightly, you could say. And so I believe that the methods that are highlighted in the Shang Hanlin are the ones that were most effective for him and his time and the, and the patients that he's working with, the presentations. Now, we have to fast forward over 1,500 years from that time. And the way that I've heard it described that seems the most logical to me and, and what I would put forth as the best working hypothesis, why you see an emergence of the one being at this time is that human beings, you know, have changed dramatically in those uh, 1500 years between the time of Zhang Zhongjing and, and the, the one being movement that arose, which is not to say that it makes the principles of, of Chinese medicine or of the Shang Han Lun irrelevant, not at all. And that was not the viewpoint of these physicians who were pushing the medicine forward and innovating like Ye Tian Shi would be the, the, you could say the grandfather of the one being movement that was followed by uh, Wu Jutong and the writing and the codification of it in the one being Tiao Bian, the, the lines on differentiation of warm disease. And this is the first text that we have in over 1500 years that is written in the style of the Shang Han Lun, that is mapping the subtle shifts of qi dynamics, the changes that are happening in the presentation of a patient from line to line, from method to method. And what it's really doing is when you study this text, when you study the discussions of warm disease, you realize that this is a discussion that is coming within the context of assumed deep understanding and appreciation for Shang Han Lun and, and all of classical medicine. There's so many places where there's formulas directly adopted from the Shang Han Lun with modifications. There's many places where there's actually lines or indications, symptoms, presentations directly adopted from the Shang Han Lun, often with commentary, right? So it's giving us a fuller fleshed out picture of that initial image that was drawn in the Shang Han Lun. And so warm disease is important because it, it gives us a further or more expanded scope of methods to address problems for which formulas within the Shang Han Lun may not be ideally suited. And these types of presentations, to summarize very generally, often have to do with the orientation of the patient's energy. So as we said, Shang Han primarily treating this inward movement of constraint, right, arising from the internal as well as internal generation as well as external contraction of the force of cold. Strategies primarily pungent and warm, pungent sweet, pungent sweet, slightly bitter and warm. Now, when you get to the warm disease movement, what they were seeing is a lot of patients generating this counterflow type pattern, meaning the energy is moving upward and outward it's expansive. It's, it's the source energy of their body being drawn out into the tissues in a way that leaves the interior or the yin deficient with the generation of either dry heat or damp heat, depending on the person's specific constitution, right? So what this does is it, it gives us methods or a view that there are these ways to treat situations where 
the energy is is floating upward and outward in a way that's often just summarized under this category as warmth of or heat, right? But what it is is a fundamental orientation of, of the body and the way it's producing pathology that is difficult to treat only with the methods of Shanghan and Jingwei. So the the mechanisms that produce this type of widespread epidemic disease are dependent on the prevailing lifestyle conditions and constitutional conditions of the people who were producing them, right? It wasn't that the epidemic diseases itself were changing so radically. It was that the people producing the symptoms and, and catching, contracting this disease were manifesting pathology in a different way, which is not to say at that time it would have been exclusively warm disease. And we can get this very clearly from the case studies of someone like Ye Tianshi or Wu Jutong that, that are you know, there for us to read. They were masters of the Shanghan methods as well as the, the warm disease methods that they were innovating and codifying as they went along. So I think that it's really important to get under this surface layer of cold versus heat and understand that this is completing the circle of Chinese medicine, meaning that if you have descending and gathering, you have to have rising and expanding. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the warm disease school really represents. So let me make sure that I'm tracking this. With the cold, you've got this contraction that's going on. It moves things inward. The body's tightening up in a sense. She's fighting against this, this outward cold. In the warm patterns, we're looking at a different dynamic. Again, you, you talk about the culture being different, the people being different. Pathogens may be more or less the same, but the body's reaction to it is very different. And instead of this contraction inward, yes. you've got this drawing out of the Wei Qi. You've got this drawing out of the Yang Qi. And because the Qi is being drawn outwards, the interior becomes deficient, unguarded in a sense, and deficient. Yes, and this allows for, you know, the saying is that Shanghan patterns damage the yang, mm -hmm. moving from yang to yin, exhausting the yang's ability to maintain some form of struggle and resistance. Well, in warm disease, the this warm nature or this hyperactive warmth or heat is a kind of excess activity at various levels of the body that excess activity and struggle of the body to rectify whatever imbalance it is suffering from ends up progressively exhausting the layers of yin from outside to inside. So that that heat then eventually moves deeper and deeper. So it said in the warm disease, and again, this is not a model of Chinese medicine that is strictly limited to warm disease school. They adopted the triple burner uh, chi and blood model for uh, simplicity. And so you have disease patterns moving from chi to blood, right? Just like from yang to yin in the corresponding sort of internalization of pathology in the Shanghan. I remember hearing Volker Scheid talk about the mangha, the mangha pie, right? And Fei Boshong, uh, I believe was his name, the, the mangha doctors. And, and are you familiar with those guys at all? I don't believe I am. Oh, okay. Well, just in a nutshell, they were 
I think late eight, late 1800s, mm-hmm. something like that. But they were often talking about because people were cultured, because they were fed, because they had extra time, because of the way their culture was. It gave rise to the conditions where they get certain kinds of illnesses. And they would often use these medicinals that were more light, they were more gentle, they were more sweet, mm-hmm. because the people were different. And of course, we have to have our medicinals match who a person is, if it's to be at all effective. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that 100%. And that Chinese medicine is fundamentally a, a medicine of physiology. And we say uh, we take the human within the equation as the foundation, right? Meaning, meaning what? That the specific characteristics of the, the individual producing that pathology are most important in determining what is going to be the most effective treatment strategy. So we look at people constitutionally, right? Chinese medicine is fundamentally a constitutional medicine, meaning that the deeper we can appreciate the unique qualities of the body energy mind complex of these individuals that we're treating, the more specific our response can become. And then even a step beyond that, the more that we are able to appreciate those specific characteristics of the body energy mind dynamic of the individual within the larger context of prevailing environmental conditions, then you're now taking the medicine to the next level and one that is really holistic in nature and I believe integrated in a fashion that ancient people, where ancient people fundamentally were starting from. I love hearing about this. One of the things that drives me a little crazy about Chinese medicine is when I think about or when I hear, or I give it this really kind of, um, I'm going to call it a simplistic gloss of, well, we're just looking at the chi and where's the chi going? Right. And I found that to be incredibly unsatisfying in attempting to practice medicine. The thing that has always gotten my interest and made me want to know more is when we start looking at physiology, formed substance of the earth physiology, and how that works and what's going on with that, along with everything else, like everything from the internal emotions to the external environment, which brings me to this question. Mm-hmm. When I think about external environment, and and I love your phrasing of with the wind being perspective of looking at that side of the movement of chi, that it's a drawing upwards and outwards. And I think about our modern society. I think about people with their eyeballs glued to their cell phones. I think about the way that our energy in so many ways in our modern culture is, in fact, drawn up and out. Yes. And this is why I believe that the appreciation, understanding of the one being, uh, as you say, the lighter, the more subtle herbs in the Chinese medicinary uh, that are suited to many modern individuals. Now, I, I think that the progressive movement away from a lifestyle that's powerfully grounded in our environment and nature is the the primary reason for these this 
evolution or, or, you know, progressive change in the way that people are producing pathology uh, in many ways. And then, of course, the specific nature of whatever uh, the pathology that they've, in a case of external invasion, contracted, so to speak. Um, but yeah, the, the modern lifestyle is particularly fraught with opportunity for drawing the yuan qi up and out, for moving into states of what we would call deficient counterflow, right? So one of the most important factors that I heard one lecturer, one, one doctor, very skilled practitioner in all you know, areas of Chinese medicine talk about with the warm disease school was that the widespread availability of plant oils was one of the most revolutionary things for human uh, energy dynamics that we really don't take into account. Meaning that because people then had the ability to create light freely at night, that coincided with the spread of larger or the growth of larger metropolitan areas. It means now people are staying up late they're going out after dark, they're reading or, or engaging in other activities at night. And now you can just continue to push that forward. And, you know, our modern era where everything is electronic, we have light on demand, we have entertainment nonstop, you know, throughout the night, if we so choose. Uh, it certainly puts us much more into a state of opportunity for creating counterflow. And what that basically means is, we exhaust our chi beyond the capacity of our physical body to hold it. Right? And that's the fundamental definition of counterflow. You can do it through physical taxation, which is what people say that again. Because I, I think I just heard you say something about counterflow that I've never heard it that way before. We basically overexhaust or we put demands on our chi, our energy of life beyond the capacity of our physical body to actually hold it as the container. And that's a kind of counterflow. That is counterflow. That is counterflow. That our energy goes beyond the boundaries that we have to contain it. What we would say is there's degrees of counterflow, meaning that it begins with the, the capacity of the kidney as the root of storage, right? And I'm going to borrow Heiner Freuhoff, my colleague here at NUNM, our founding professor, his language, he says, it's like the liquid of a car battery in that it has to hold the charge, right? The, the fundamental role of the kidney is one of, uh, of passivity, but it's, it's that cauldron that holds the energy and the charge of the body. So as soon as we go into a state where that connection of you know, inside to outside or up to down, surface to interior is compromised, we're pushing the progression of counterflow, basically. So as soon as that chi is not going down as much as it's going out, meaning there's not as much cash coming in as cash going out, mm -hmm. you're pushing yourself progressively into the bound up to that boundary of counterflow. And then often we go, we easily go beyond it. And, you know, we can experience this very clearly in our lives. I think many of us would say, oh, you know, there's this thing that happens, and I'm sure you've had this experience with your patients, which is they say, you know, after dinner at like eight or nine o'clock, I get this wave of sleepiness. But if I stay awake, then it's like 10, 10, 30, I get my second wave, and now the kids are in bed, and I can go ahead and do what I want to do. And I find that I'm very effective 
and efficient at getting things done at that time of the night. It's because you've moved from that state of smooth connection where your energy naturally wants to go into a state of rest and you're, you know, by being awake at that time, moving into the zushur of the of the night when energy should be descending and gathering deeply. Now you're moving, you're, you're still awake, your energy is going outward and often we're engaging with further forms of stimulation at that time very strongly. That makes sense. And how do I phrase this? This is this is one of these things as we're having this conversation, I, I feel like there's some things happening in my mental framework and how I look at and put things together that are kind of shifting. I don't have the words for describing how they're shifting at this moment, other than I think you've just opened up a doorway for me here to better understand counterflow in a much more, I'm going to say, nuanced way than beyond things like vomiting or sweating or things that are very, very, you know, notable. Anger going upwards, you know, that's a kind of counterflow. What you're talking about here, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that there's some very subtle dynamics that can happen. We don't even realize we're involved in counterflow. But like when you say with the bank account, oh, you have a little more going out than coming in. Mm-hmm. I often hear practitioners, especially new practitioners, speak about how they're giving so much to their patients, but they don't have enough coming in. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's exhausting over time. You've got to learn how to make sure that you've got literally decent cash flow, that, that there's a kind of balance and exchange of energy. Whatever goes up in equivalent amount should also be going down. What's ever coming in in equivalent amount should be going out. Mm-hmm. Anytime those mechanisms get disrupted, ah, there's some counterflow there. That is that is certainly common form or common example, uh, just to broaden it or deepen it a little further, we can say, you know, that that type of counterflow I'm describing is deficient counterflow. Mm. What you're talking about, like overflowing of this energy of the liver of anger, that is an excessive type of counterflow. What I often substitute, uh, you know, this idea of counterflow, if we look at the characters themselves is is, is juxtaposed with shun, right? Shun and mi. Mm-hmm. Shun is a is a is a person's head or some representation of a person and a river, meaning following the flow of things, right? Mm-hmm. Ni is moving against that. Well, I use the terms congruent and non-congruent often as better substitutes for helping us understand the full scope of what really this idea of shun and ni represents. So when we talk about a patient who, let's say, for example, in, in your uh, analogy of a practitioner who's constantly giving or putting out and is feeling deficient, we would say that's a type of yin deficiency, right? A type of internal deficiency, a, re- a lack of that nourishing sense of return on chi energy put out, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we would expect that person to manifest in a yin state, meaning a low energy state of body and mind, right? Like if we were going to use six confirmations, we would say maybe they're in a Taiyin state. Maybe if it gets really bad, they might end up in a Shaoyin state. Well, as long as they manifest in that quiet kind of low energy, somewhat passive, 
possibly moving towards the spectrum of of bluer experience of emotion, we would say that's congruent. But what happens when they start to manifest in terms of hyper excitation? They're very animated and very windy, or they're very angry, or their spirit manifests very powerfully, and yet their body seems very exhausted. We would also say that that's a type of incongruence between body and mind. And as such, you're looking really at a type of counterflow, which is the chi energy is now not functioning smoothly and gathering in the body in order to generate and, and rejuvenate itself. It's manifesting primarily at the spirit level or the chi level of activity. And so you have another type of incongruency or counterflow, which is fundamentally between body and mind. And I would make the argument that this is the most common type of incongruency that we see in our clinical setting today, which is largely because I think our culture doesn't really necessarily honor the idea that when you're tired, you just rest or that there is a value in being passive, a, a very important value uh, in being passive rather than pushing through, you know, rather than trying to maintain whatever mode of living that you've had for perhaps a very long time, just continue to let that inertia roll through. When there are periods in our life, I think we would all agree where we need to sometimes be a little bit more yin. We need to appreciate, you know, the more passive approach of perhaps problem solving at times or of building energy and rejuvenating before we tackle those things in our life. And that really is what keeps us congruent. Uh, would you say that someone who has this kind of yin deficiency that you're just talking about, and we would expect them to actually want to be more quiet, that that kind of congruency makes it easier to recover from the situation? Whereas when you've got the separation of a yin and yang, you should be more quiet, but you're actually more active. Yes. Now you've got a more serious and potentially a more dangerous situation. Very much so. And as we're talking, though this kind of incongruency can start in relatively, at a relatively shallow depth, but really when you're getting into that state of incongruency, you're talking about Shaoin disease, right? So the Shaoin uh, first line of the chapter says, the patient, and this line is very interesting, Dan Yume, the patient has a very fine pulse and they only want to sleep. Or I also read this as a, an indication of some type of uh, contrarian statement, as in, and contrary to how they manifest, they want to sleep. So there's two different meanings to this. One is, in a congruent state of Shaoyin level pathology, the patient should be somnolent. They should be sleeping all the time. But we see many Shaoyin level patients who cannot sleep right? Who all they want to do is sleep all the time, but they cannot sleep. And this is a type of counterflow or incongruence, right? And the further that goes, if you're in that state and you continue to push, you continue to push, you continue to put these demands on your energy body, that is what progressively gives rise to gen degeneration into Jiayin type condition. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. 
They're concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Trillion Conditions I think are one of the most confusing of the six different levels. I remember when I was in acupuncture school, there was a lot of head scratching around that one. It's like, what the hell is this? It's like the end of things, but you know, then supposedly it goes from like Dre Yin to death. But then later I was studying some things that say, well, actually Dre Yin and Shaoyang are uh, intimately connected, right? We look at like liver and gallbladder and, Yes. You know, that kind of a thing. I remember when I first started looking at the six levels, it was like you start at the Taiyang and you end at the Dreyin and, you know, then it's goodbye. But these things are actually interconnected with each other. It's a circle. It's not a layer cake, as I understand it at this point. When, uh, when I discuss the six phases, I do a basic series of introduction to the six phases for our first year students here. We talk about it in two contexts. And this is, I think, essential for really understanding Shang Han Lun, but also all of Chinese medicine and practice. And that is, it is both linear in terms of the six phases are first and foremost a reflection of the activity, the level of activity of Yang Qi and how well it is maintaining these levels of activity, right? But it's also spherical meaning that these phases are like spheres of energetic experience. So at their most basic form, the six phases are really based on the six chi, right? The, the, these basic components of nature that constitute us, right? Meaning you have Tai Yang cold water, Yang Ming dry metal, and so on and so forth. These are constituent elements of our human experience. This is, this is like a periodic table of Chinese medicine. Exactly. The five elemental forces govern earth. The six environmental factors pervade heaven. These are what compose us as human beings. And they are, of course, nothing more than a reflection of the integration of yin and yang and the ultimate holism of all things. Now, in terms of their linear fashion of like a barometer, you know, I, I talk about when, when I was young, the carnival would always come around in the summertime and you had that, uh, oversized hammer, you know, the strongman challenge where you go and smack that big thermometer and you see how high it can go. Right. 
that is like what your body is doing on a day-to-day basis is like, what's your baseline? What are you walking around at? And then under stress, how does your body respond either up or down, right? Given the, the prevailing conditions, that's functionality of yang qi or zhen qi, zheng qi, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of the movement, it doesn't always go like, okay, start at tai yang, end at chue yin, right? Like we, we go to immediately when we start studying. Not everybody starts at the tai yang, right? In fact, I would say that the number of true tai yang conditions, what we would call ma huang tang conditions, the people who can produce that type of response to an external pathogenic invasion or what have you, very few, honestly. And I would just ask people to reflect on when was the last time you had a high fever of, say, like 102 together with that whole body aches, no sweating and, and bone crushing chills. Like we, as the, mostly as adults, we don't produce this type of pathology. Now, in terms of the bottom end, when you're moving into Shaoyin, Jueyin, you find actually Shaoyin in, in the, the text of the Shanghan Lin, the, the lines that describe death are actually more numerous in the Shaoyin than the Jueyin. So Shaoyin, we say, is where death comes rather abruptly often, meaning the level or the, the corresponding anatomical structures of the Shaoyin, brain, heart, kidneys, uh, cardiovascular system, right? When something goes off there, you, you really don't have very long. And the Shaoyin is when separation comes in this fashion. But it's also, you can think of it as uh, we age, we naturally move into a Shaoyin state, you know, in our 60s or 70s. And so in English, when we say, oh, this person died of old age, really what happened was, is they died in a relative state of Shaoyin integration and Yin and Yang just peacefully separate. So it, not everyone is going to develop a Jueyin condition, right? Jueyin is a different kind of disintegration. And so when you say that, you scratch your head and go, well, this Jueyin condition, what's that all about? Yeah, after you've worked with a lot of Jueyin conditions, you're still going to scratch your head and go, man, what is this all about? Because everyone manifests Jueyin conditions, again, in a somewhat personalized and different fashion the way in which that disintegration is going to manifest is often very unique. And the relative degree of chaos that arises, or we can say contradictory nature of many different signs mm-hmm. is, is always different for different people. And so that's what I tell students is when you're sitting there and going, this is all, no, no order is arising here. I can't make heads or tails out of all of these seeming contradictory signs and symptoms and findings, you should probably ask yourself, this, is this a draining condition, right? And you should begin to wonder at uh, the nature and how you're going to address it and where that fundamental disintegration lies, basically. Because as we know, working with draining conditions is very challenging. Uh, it's not going to be a very predictable and smooth course of treatment. Often it's going to be... Uh, a bit difficult, it's going to certainly push us to the boundaries of our ability to bring these tools to bear on it, but also because Jueyin may or often involves uh, deep psycho-emotional components that are contributing to this disintegration of yin and yang. And so it's often a very personal journey uh, of integration for the patient 
as well. And, and that's a very challenging, often a very challenging series uh, of uh, changes to work through. I'm thinking here as we're having this conversation about how we have these different mental models. We have these different maps of looking at things like the Wuxing, the five phases, or the 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 Ojing, right? The six, the six Jing, the six whatever you want to call them. And sometimes these things really make sense, right? Our mental model, you know, we can, it kind of fits reality in a certain way. Xiaoyang conditions, they may go back and forth, but there's a kind of regularity about them in a sense. You can kind of get your hands around it. Just talking about the Xiaoyin with the heart, kidney. I mean, I'm thinking old age. What, what do people often suffer from? Heart and kidney issues, right? Your way of talking about people 60 and above who die of quote old age yeah there's there, there's your shaoyin just like running out of fuel right that happens in time if you're lucky if you're lucky you yeah. die old of a shaoyin condition right i would i would amend that to say it's not just luck <laughs> <laughs> if you've been doing your homework yeah following yep. natural progression yeah okay um thank you for that clarification but we get into this drain and it's like, what the hell is this? It's all over the place. And when I think about my clinical experience and sitting with people that I could sort of slot into these spaces, it's easier to understand a drain, I'm sorry, a Shaoyin condition. Sitting with people that are having drain issues, I, I, I am now realizing there's something in the back of my head going, be very cautious. There could be a mental health diagnosis here as well and be, and just like tread with caution. Yes. So a couple of things there that are very interesting. Uh, one time I was in our, our teaching center in Shanghai where I travel under normal, so-called normal circumstances, traveled to teach several times a year. And um, I'm still able, I have a, I did, it expired, but I will renew my temporary license uh, to practice medicine in Shanghai as well. And so I can see patients there when I travel, which is, I, I really enjoy. And I was in the clinic with a few students and we had two patients come in in the succession. Uh, one, a woman roughly in her early forties, I believe, who appeared very well off, let's say financially comfortable and otherwise doing well in life, no major no major pathologies, but she was coming in, I believe, for some type of sleep issues and menstrual irregularity. And when we took her pulses, we saw some pretty interesting findings in that, you know, I read or I learned the system from Jacques of reading the Renying and Sunco pulses mm -hmm. in order to first differentiate qi and blood. And that gives us a very clear holographic image often of states of counterflow, how severe they are and so forth. So in, in working with this young woman, younger woman or middle-aged woman found these very interesting patterns of imbalance. The right pulses are all elevated and wiry and tight. Her renying pulses are strong. And the second patient who came after that was a woman in her late seventies who one of my students brought in, who is like a godmother to her. And this woman came in and she was so sweet. She was as sweet as the day is long. And she was just such a pleasure to talk to. She sat down, she's perfectly self-aware her, her mind is clear she's you know a little bit infirm in that her body is is weak you know she would take her 
goddaughter's arm when she came in and she spoke very softly. She was very frail build. This classic constitutional, what we call Shaoin type constitution, more introverted, but she was holding her energy so well. And when we took her pulse, it was just deep, soft, slightly deficient, but moderate. Her reigning pulses are very quiet and calm. So after these two patients, I said to my students, you know, who do you think is in better health of these two people? And of course, everyone said, well, the woman in her 40s seems like she's doing really well. She's all, you know, vital and looked all done up and kind of had this strong projection of her energy. I said, no, this, this mm -hmm. elderly woman who came in, who's living completely congruous with her energy state at that age in, in a well-balanced showing condition, no hypertension, no other chronic issues, not taking any pharmaceutical medications on a regular basis. I was like, that is a state of very good health. And that's what this map also gives us is the understanding of the way in which all of this is predicated on these discussions of rising, descending, expanding, and gathering. These are the mechanisms by which birth, growth, decay or, or gathering, and then eventual resolution and death return to source all play out, right? And so if we understand these forces as balancing the progression of, of aging or the evolution of life across decades, it also tells us the way in which people should look at different times, you know? When, when you're in your 20s, you should be robust and have this powerful Yang Ming energy that's like effulgent and wants to take on the world, right? This is what would be normal in a state of someone in their in their 20s. But of course, the way I described that woman in her in her late 70s, this is a perfect congruous showing state. And this is a state of very good health. As a practitioner, all we have to do is, you know, do something very simple. I think I use something simple like a low dose of bajan tang or something like this that's just going to support the chi and blood. That's going to have a little bit of tonification a little bit of circulation, right? We can prescribe some moxa uh, on a, you know, daily or, or, you know, every other day kind of basis just to keep things moving smoothly. And, and that's really all they need. Yeah. There's the uh, power of congruence right there. Power of congruence with your health. Yeah. And it makes sense that at a younger age, I, I like the way you, you phrase it. There's going to be more of a Yang Ming presentation maybe a little manic, it's out there, you're singing from the mountaintops. I mean, you should be in your 20s. I'm worried about people in their 20s that aren't. A, a little bit, yeah. And it's not to say that the very extroverted, outwardly adventurous person is going to be the, the model or the norm for everyone. You know, I think one thing that Chinese medicine also can teach us, traditional medicine, is understanding that that young energy, even when effulgent, is going to manifest in different people in different ways. But, you know, there should be a strong sense of like hey, this life thing. I'm pretty interested in seeing what it's all about. Well, and extroverted people will manifest it one way, introverted yet another. I was watching, um, this was a couple months ago, just after Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were watching a documentary about her life. And my... Uh, my daughter was, uh, she's more on the introverted side. So she, she's looking at this and she's, and she's about 16 now. And she was uh, particularly caught by the moment 
in the in the documentary where her friends were talking about her. Oh yeah, Ruthie back when we were kids, we were out at the protests and she was like busy studying law. Yeah. So she could make a difference in that way. Yeah. And as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, yeah, there so that was her expression in her 20s. She took that energy but she moved it inward because she was inward. And she cultivated something inside of herself that eventually allowed her to become the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, I don't know that much about her her life story, uh, but just you know, from what I see, she strikes me as very like Shaoyin constitution and the very deep expression of water element. Mm-hmm. Water element is what gives rise to wisdom, right? The in the process of five elements, the culmination of that gathering back deep inside is what really gives us true wisdom. And that's a very Shaoyin type undertaking, you know, the, the energy of the Shaoyin or of winter, right? We have to understand what it means to go deep inside and often to, you know, spend time alone. So like in the Neijing, it says that Shaoyin constitutional people, they, they spend time alone, right? Meaning not in a way that's lonely or sad, they're, they're not afraid of that deep going inside, of deep study, of deep personal examination and growth, like a Ruth Bader, uh, Gator, Bader Ginsburg or like a great musician or anyone else who really aspires to some type of accomplishment, um, whether it be inner or outer. You do have to be able to do that time alone. Great writers, same thing. Absolutely. There's, there's that, and we could use the term cultivation, but it's, I mean, I, I think it's a certain kind of ability to, to tolerate that inward motion and to be fine with spending time with yourself and seeing what you discover there. For sure. Another thing that certainly 2020 um, has tested us on in a, in a very widespread manner, perhaps unseen, at least in my lifetime you know, with all of these enforced stay-at-home orders and such. I mean, it's it's a Shaoin adventure, basically. And we've seen how in different situations that's gone either trending towards the positive or in some cases trending towards the very challenging for different people. Yeah, so true. Well, I realize that we're at about an hour now, and I really wanted to talk with you about autoimmune issues and Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm wondering if we can come back another time and have that conversation. Sure. I'd be more than happy to uh, to get into that and a little bit more of the technical aspects of uh, the practice on another visit. Absolutely. That'd be great. I feel like we've started to lay a foundation here for thinking about how our chi, how our energy moves and, and ways of thinking about it that, that very much home in on the very foundations of our medicine, the quotes that you used here today from some of the classics. And uh, when I think about the five movements of earth and the six movements of heaven, I mean, this is the DNA of Chinese medicine. Very much so. Yeah, very much. You know, I think that getting back or really drawing this out in our own experience is the key to unlocking these, these classical or ancient views um, for ancient people, you know, this was a very real experience. It strikes me whenever I read the Neijing, just how fundamentally embodied uh, this medicine must have been for people back then. 
particularly the, the, those ancient sages who codified and transmitted this knowledge. I, I think there's a, there's a way in which we move again into that mental sphere very easily as modern people, but the more we can recognize, you know, the movements, the dynamic, the contrast and complementary actions of yin and yang or chi and blood in our life, we begin to appreciate the five elements as these five movements and forces, these six environmental factors as qualities of being both physically as well as psycho-emotionally in our experience, the more we're really getting back to that embodied state of Chinese medicine. And I hope the more it's going to help us understand and appreciate the dynamics of our patients and the tools we're using to help address those uh, problems that arise. So thank you for the time to explore this a little bit. It's, it's very enjoyable to, um, to sit down and talk with you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. For me, these, on first glance, like so many things, they look, they, it looks simple and it looks easy. It's like, oh, that's that, that's that. Simple, easy. And it is on first glance. But at least in my experience, and especially in the work of practicing medicine, coming back and looking at it again and again and again and, and using these as like a compass that points a certain kind of north or a certain kind of south and being able to take whatever it is we see with our patients or even just our own experience from our lives. And it's like, where does that fit within these fundamentals? It's a very simple question that actually gets harder and harder to answer the, the more I practice. Because the easy answers only work for the most simplest of cases. Oftentimes, but I would, I would make the argument again, I believe it was Da Vinci says that simplicity is the highest form of mastery, right? Mm. Meaning that my experience of the study of Chinese medicine was I got thrown directly into that extremely diverse, variegated forest landscape uh, where everything was extremely detailed and complicated. Uh, but then through working with those mentor figures primarily that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, things seem to settle down and it, more and more you can see the connections between them or the underlying order that gives rise to them. And in fact, there's been a movement more and more towards simplicity. And what I try to remind myself or what I, I try to remain aware of in my clinical practice is whenever I'm in an encounter and I'm not feeling confident that I'm able to experience this situation and the process my patient is describing and that we're, we're observing and working through together in the treatment, whenever I'm not able to bring that back to those fundamentals, that's when I know that I need to spend some extra time and be a bit more cautious as you were saying. Mm because it generally means that either I'm not seeing something, I'm not seeing the situation, I'm not experiencing the situation clearly. Something on my side is off. Maybe I'm having a bit of a, an off day, or maybe there's elements in the interaction that are distracting me or other aspects of my life that are distracting me. But for some reason, if I'm not seeing these fundamentals clearly, I try to exercise caution and review or, or treat very cautiously and challenge myself to come back to these fundamentals every time because whenever treatments or strategies have not gone well and it's been not successful it's almost universally because i was overthinking it 
And I was stuck in that level of the diversity and complexity without treating or working from the clear vision of these fundamentals. And as soon as I get there, it was like, what was I doing? You know, you kind of wake right up and it, you, you realize, okay, let's simplify this. Let's get back to doing what's going to work. And this is where you get into a place, I think, where your formulas and treatments start to feel like they're going to be effective before they're done. You know, that the diagnostic process is a self-confirming process so that you get into the ins and outs of treatment and you feel confident. You know, why is it Wang Wen Wen Chie? This order of the four steps of diagnosis is you're self-confirming along the way so that you have that confidence and you feel, I see what's going on. I, I see. I know that each step is congruous with the previous one. I have this vision. Here's what I'm going to do about it. And you kind of begin to develop, you know, this confidence that I know this treatment is going to be effective. I know this formula is going to help prior to the patient taking it. And that is a place I, I would really like to build from for my for my practice moving forward. You know, it's by no means where I'm at all the time. And, and that's kind of when it happens. It, it really is that like, OK, this is that groove that people talk about in Chinese medicine, you know? <laughs> well, there's a groove in anything. Yeah. If you're a potter, there's days where you like throw the clay down and it's like the damn thing just centers itself effortlessly, right? You could be out shooting arrows in archery and you just can't hit the damn target. And then there's the times where you can't not hit the target. Yeah. Or you're out skiing and every single little turn, they just, one goes into the other. You don't even... You just feel your way down the mountain. You don't think about anything. Yeah. And then there's days where it's like, oh, that goddamn mogul field. Yeah, it comes and it goes. I, I think we're very fortunate with this medicine that we have these principles that are so incredibly reliable. I know for myself these days when I'm lost in a treatment because I say to myself, according to the theory, mm -hmm. and I know I'm gone, I know I'm lost, and I have to go back to, for me, what is the very basic that always gets me back on track, which is, am I looking at deficiency or excess? And if yeah. I can't answer that question. Yeah, the, the bagang is so powerful. Yeah. I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who, um, it's not struggles. It's more like we get this opportunity to uh, explore um, and kind of dance with it. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say, you know, it's great over time to see, we should be seeing, and I believe I've heard many of your guests talk about this, we should be growing in that it's an upward trend where even on our off days, the the low end of that uh, performance is still higher than it was previously, you know? And I, I think that's, that's what's happening over time uh, in, in any path to mastery. And that's what, you know, we're, we're honing a craft. Yes. Absolutely agreed. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This has been delightful, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Michael. Look forward to it. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.